Deep pattern, downfield, touchdown Miami! What a throw, Devontae Parker! Holy smokes, what a drive! What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and as always, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, oh yeah, it's Fan Friday and Football Friday. We're going to hear from John Kinjemi and put the finishing touches on our Raiders preview ahead of week three in Las Vegas. Plus, we'll answer your mailbag questions, give you the weekend scouting guide in college football, and make our picks coming off a 12-4 and week. You gotta love it. You love to see it. From the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex, this is... The Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. And let's get right into this podcast with my guest, as we do every Friday, John Kinjemi. Well, John, we did get our chance to talk some ball at Hard Rock Stadium, although not over the key lime pie I was hoping to have with you, <laughs> and, and certainly not the outcome we were looking for on the field either. But regardless, it was good to be back in that building and back in that seat next to you, my friend. You know what? It, it was great to, to be back in Hard Rock Stadium. Good to see you and, and watch the game from our perch. And, and it was not what we wanted in terms of the outcome. But, you know, gosh, it, it wasn't as bad as the outcome either at 35 to nothing because you felt like if the Dolphins make one play when they have positive field position, it's a one touchdown game going to halftime and you never know what can happen in the second half. So, there were some things obviously that need to get corrected and get corrected fast and you lose your quarterback uh, in, in the meantime. But when you look at overall 35, nothing doesn't really tell the whole story, right. uh, but it's not where the dolphins wanted to be in week two. Absolutely not. And I was so appreciative of your approach throughout that game. Cause I mean, there were so many moments where you could like kind of bury your head and say, ah, this game's not going our way, but you kept on, you kept on keeping me in it, John, by saying, Hey, we're, you know, this is a key possession. We're going to stop here. And, and that was the case for a lot of that game. And it just, it never got that way for the offense where they could cut into that lead. So hopefully this week we have some better results. And I want to go ahead and turn the page as, you know, as fast as we can on that game and start here because you've played a lot of football in your life. You've watched probably even more football. I was hoping you could take us inside the player's perspective for turning the page after a game like that. And it was kind of a theme I had throughout the week talking to coaches and players because I also got a lot of you know this answer back about how it's the same for a big win. Like, Talk about the importance of managing emotions and coming back off a tough loss. Like, What's the approach for the player to get over that, move on, and get on to the next Sunday? You know, it's tough sometimes, and it all depends on how the game goes and where it is in the season for a player. I can remember there were some losses that linger. Uh, they, they really sting. And there were some that you got over a lot quicker because you were never really in the football game. Yeah. You felt like, wow, that was a throwaway. I don't know what happened, but we got just, you know, bowled over and let's just let's rinse and get that one out and let's move on to the next one. And sometimes wins linger too long. You know, sometimes you're feeling so good after you, you play that you're talking about it. And it's Thursday and, and you're really not focused on the next one. So sometimes, um, you know, the better and the quicker that you turn the page uh, to the next opponent, it's probably better for the football team from from top to bottom, no matter if you're on the coaching staff or you're, you know, 53 on the roster. But I think that one was kind of in between, Travis, for me, because 
although you were one score away from being in the game, uh, Buffalo didn't do a whole lot to separate. And yet when you looked, it was 35 nothing. I thought it was way too easy for a good team like the Buffalo Bills to come in on the road early in the season and kind of not have your A game, but they were good enough to beat a team that couldn't find its way that, that day, that Sunday. So uh, this one might be a little bit easier to flush uh, as a player because you just, all you remember is 35 nothing. As a fan or as a, an analyst, you're going back and looking, well, could have been this, could have been that. But as a player, you're just going, let's get on to the Raiders. They're 2-0. and They beat two really good teams, and we have to find a way to play our best to be able to win. It winning cures everything. And you, you said two things there that really kind of piqued my interest. Number one, the, the, the victories that linger a little bit. I talked about this on a either earlier podcast or recording the podcast before you came on. I forgot. But about the Miami Miracle game back in 2018, the Dolphins would lose the next three, and those games weren't even close. So I think that's a good example of how sometimes the emotions can go the other way on you. And then also uh, you referenced the point in the season in which, you know, certain events occur. And I've been thinking about this the last couple of days, how I don't ever look back at like a week two moment in a season and say that was a pivotal turning point. Like people aren't going to remember this good or bad, this part of the season at the end of the year, right? Like all the wins and losses count, but at the end of the year, it's about how you're playing, you know, post Halloween, post Thanksgiving and that, you know, and that type of thing. Like, there's been years where the Dolphins started off 3-0 and and it didn't end well. Or there's been years where they started off 1-3 and and it ended well. So I think that perspective is important and it seems to get lost sometimes. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Now, the key on the podcast that I referenced in the Thursday preview episode was to get the ball to the backs in the run game and through the air because I think that running at those two-star pass rushers they have with uh, Max Crosby and Yannick Ngakwe, and they're both 245-pound guys, John. So trying to get Miles and Savon matched up on those linebackers and also going at those DNs in the running game, would you agree that's a good way to kind of handle this ferocious pass rush of the Raiders? Yeah, that, that's definitely one way to do it, Travis. And in that scenario, you also make it easier for Jacoby Brissett to get completions, to move the chains, to get some flow in the offense and, and stay on the field. Because both... Gaskin and Ahmed, they make people miss in the open field, and, and that's a good thing. And the more touches that those guys can get uh, early, I think maybe opens up the Raider defense where you might have a chance to run the football. Remember, I, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of RPO this week. I, I don't know if you're going to rely on that, that ball fake quick slant. You may get one or two, but I think it's going to be more shotgun, drop back, it's not there, check it down. Uh, get the tight end, get Kasiki and Smythe involved early and Shaheen involved. Uh, get, get those guys, the football over the middle, you know, easy throws. And, and then that gets that motion uh, with Waddle going, you know, from one side of the formation to the other. You don't like it, you check it down. And that's the easiest way for Jacoby to get completions, to get some rhythm in the offense. You know, you, you'd like to see that happen because you know for a fact that defensive coordinator for the Raiders, Gus Bradley, I'm sure he's going to build on some of the schemes that he saw uh, Leslie Frazier, the Bills defensive coordinator, run last week because it caused identification problems. It caused issues. And you're going to want to try to use some of that within your scheme to rattle a guy that's making uh, a started quarterback. You know, even though he played a, a long time in the game last week, this is a different animal. He's got all week to prepare. He's, you know, he's trying to do everything perfect. 
Now, all of a sudden, he sees something he's not sure of. What's he do with the football? Does he panic? Does he throw it away? Does he take a sack? Or is he able to check it down and make a, a turn a negative into a positive play? So those things early can really pick up an offense. I really loved it at the coach's presser on Wednesday. Somebody asked him if the offense will change. And I, I admire the question because you, you want to ask it, but you're not going to get an answer out of any coach on that particular question. So coach just said no, and we'll see what the actual uh, result is on Sunday in terms of how they attack this Raiders defense. Because we talk about it all the time, John, very versatile system, very versatile scheme and roster that can adapt to that week's opponent. I want to go back to your comments there about Jacoby Brissett and just ask you this follow-up question. What are your expectations in his first start as a Miami Dolphin? They're high. They're high for me. I watched watched him, you know, all offseason and in training camp, and he's definitely got uh, the tools to, to be a starting quarterback. Uh, I like his mobility. I like his accuracy. I like his, his moxie, you know, pushing the ball down the field. Um, he gets everybody going, and he doesn't let a whole lot of stuff linger. You know, if it's a bad play, if it's an interception, if it's a, you know, just a, a, a pre-snap penalty, hey, get back in the huddle, let's go, let's get back on it. I, I think he has those leadership uh, skills that guys want to follow him, you know. And, and Jacoby said it multiple times this week about he always prepares as the starter, and you have to have that mindset. I've played in that role. I've been the starter. I've been the backup. It doesn't matter. You're one play away all the time if you're not the guy to be the guy, and you have to be able to accept that responsibility and make, make it seamless for everybody else around you so that they have the confidence level that, hey, this guy, we can win with him. So my expectations for Jacoby are very high. He's going to have a full week of, of preparation, my advice, and he doesn't need mine, but I'm sure he's thinking of this, be yourself. Don't try to do too much and make the plays that you make on a daily basis. So I think he's going to be able to do that. Um, you know, Obviously, he's going to need some help up front. He's going to need some help on the other side of the football, keeping the Raiders out of the end zone because I think they're number one in, in uh, or number seven, I think, in points scored, close to 30 points per game. So you don't want to get into a shooting match, but if you do, you know you've got a guy that's been there and done that, and you hope he can do it on Sunday. Yeah, it's number seven in scoring, number one in total offense, number one in passing offense. And I'm glad you mentioned that because the Dolphins are going to need a three-phase victory if they're going to get a victory in this game. And talking about playing a complementary style of football, that's what Jacoby is at his best, in my opinion, when he complements the other elements of the team. And if this defense, I mean, last year there was a couple drives early against the Raiders, and then obviously late in that game some things got crazy. But for the most part, they had a pretty good plan, and they hemmed in Derek Carr and kept that offense relatively stagnant through the first three quarters of that game. So hopefully you get that same look. And that's kind of where we go back to the defensive side with the rest of these questions here, John. Two more for you. You know, looking at Miami's defensive approach and defending Josh Allen, I found it interesting they were in man coverage 85% of the time and blitzed 25% of the time. Both of those were somewhat departures from the norm in terms of their season average over the last couple of years, but they held him under 200 yards. And that only happened three times a year ago. So what do you think of that approach? And will it be similar or will they adapt this week in Las Vegas? Well, you know, I think, you know, people think you're crazy, 35 nothing, and go, yeah, the defense was really good, right? So but overall, I don't think his numbers were that impressive, and I agree with you there. Uh, but he made some big plays, both with his arm and his legs again. You know, we, we mentioned this last week. This is a guy that's, you know, averaged against the Dolphins close to 60 yards on the ground every time he's faced them. 
And on Sunday, last Sunday, he had 40 yards on the ground. But some were, you know, designed. They were a quarterback sweep from 15. I think they tacked on a 15-yard penalty. So basically, it was a 30-yard gain for the Bills. You know, you cut the field almost in half there. Um, he made some big plays down the field, especially in the third quarter coming right out. You know, you get a 22-yarder to Beasley, a 13-yarder to Sanders, then you get another uh, one to Singletary. You know, it's just uh, it's it's something that those big plays happen at the wrong time and it spiraled on the Dolphins. Uh, you get a, you know, you get a rush for, you know, what is it? 46 yards of yeah. second play of the game, but that's not on Josh Allen, but it was the big plays. You know, it, he, he finds a way to, to mask some deficiencies when the Buffalo offense isn't going well, he'll use his legs to kind of spark those big plays down the field. And, you know, and I disregard, you know, that last one, uh, I think it was 40 plus yards to digs because the game was in hand there. But I thought the Dolphin defense did enough, but it was the big plays really uh, that hurt them, especially in that third quarter. So you're hoping that it's a four-quarter game on the other side of the football trying to keep an, a Raider offense that lives with those plays to Waller and to Ruggs. Uh, you know, you, you get those checkdowns to Kenyon Drake. Uh, so you got to be aware of Hunter Renfro there's some guys that can make some big plays on that offense. So those are the things I would look for. Try to carry over the good stuff from the Buffalo game, but eliminate that explosive play that you're giving up on a, on a more regular basis. Yeah. Something this defense was really good at last year was limiting the big plays. And, you know, coach Gerald Alexander talks all the time about how big plays come through the secondary. And that's one of the strongest units on this football team. So hopefully a bounce back day for everybody involved and a victory. Cause again, winning will cure a lot of issues around here as far as how people are a little bit upset this week on social media and the like, and, and I don't blame them. It's been a tough week here in dolphins land. Last question before the mailbag here, John, the dolphins win this game. If go ahead. Uh, I think they need to stay ahead of the chains. I, I think, you know, you get a quarterback now that's making his first start, hasn't played a full game in a while, although he played a lot last week against Buffalo. I think you need to win on first and second down, stay out of that second and third and long, because that's when you start losing field position. And we saw this last week. The Dolphins had excellent field position in that game, got zero points out of it after uh, an X interception and, and, uh, and you take over at the 42, you get chances in the end zone, you get chances inside the 10, and you cough the football up. So I, I think you you, you got to win early downs because that's going to lead to field position advantage over the long run of four quarters, and it's going to make it easier on Jacoby. I think, I think secondly, much like the Dolphin defense did against New England, you have to make the Raiders kick field goals. Yeah. Although they have an excellent field goal kicker, I'd rather see them attempt field goals than letting Carr uh, find Waller uh, for an explosive play or target Ruggs uh, in an explosive play in the red zone or Renfro or, you know, like I said, you know, Kenyon's caught a lot of balls over two weeks out of the backfield. So make them kick field goals, be stingy, you know, in between the twenties, let them have their, you know, whatever they're going to earn. But when you get backed up, make them kick field goals because that's how you're going to stay and, and potentially win the game. And lastly, it's, the line of scrimmage, control it. You don't have to win it this week, but you need to be better than last week because we, we can see how the dominoes fall when you don't win up front on both sides of the football. You let an early run go on defense for 46 yards on, the, on a two-play drive, and you're down 7 nothing. You didn't win. You didn't win at the point of attack, and you didn't win at the second level. 
So on offense, you cut guys loose early uh, in that game. You lose your quarterback on the second series. Uh, you don't you misidentify something up front. So you have to win the line of scrimmage in the National Football League. But you got to you don't have to win it all the time, you know, necessarily, but you need to control it. You can't lose it the way they did against Buffalo. He is John Congemi here on the Drive Time Podcast. John, can you stick around for a couple of mailbag questions for us? Sure. All right, let's get into Love that. To. We've got, I think we've got four here for you I want to uh, dive into. Let's go to this one first from Gavin Stevens. He's at Gav, uh, Gavi the Gunner. <laughs> Great name, that is. Uh, this kind of goes back to what you just said about the, the trench play. Was the Buffalo defensive line that much superior to the New England line? And I'm, I'm sure he's referring to the fact that in New England, there wasn't as many pressures and sacks, but like you mentioned, against Buffalo, there were. So he wants to just know about the difference between the Buffalo defensive line and the Patriots D-line. Maybe it's more schematic, right, John? Well, I think it had a lot more to do with the Miami Dolphins than it did New England or Buffalo in both of those games. Now, not taking anything away from those defenses because they can get after you on the edge. But I think it got out of hand quickly and it looked like, you know, a little bit of confusion. I think it was an identification problem uh, with quarterback and offensive line and running back. I think at, at times all three guys or all three segments of your offense missed. And it made it look worse than it should have been. Uh, you let a free blitzer go. Now, is that the quarterback's fault? Is that the running back uh, going inside instead of to the edge of the of the uh, tackle? Or is that just a, a, an identification uh, mishap where you let a guy go and you thought you had him blocked? So I think there was a lot of dominoes that led to uh, sacks and quarterback hits and negative runs and, and let, cutting guys free at the line of scrimmage in the Buffalo game. And I'm sure that uh, Brian Flores and the coaching staff on the offensive side are going to take care of that moving from week two to week three because it was more about the Miami Dolphins, uh, I, I believe, um, having some, some lapses in judgment, having some misidentification problems, and having just some physical errors uh, than it was the Buffalo Bills. That's a great prelude into question number two here because, you know, I – Two games into the season, obviously every single week in the NFL is going to have, um, I don't want to say knee-jerk reactions, but just every every game comes with a lot of you know scrutiny. That's how it is in today's league, and uh, I want to preach patience, but I want to hear your take on this. A question from Ken R. He's at Crickster on Twitter. He says, game one, 17 points. Game two, no points. Is this two-headed offensive coordinator gig working for Miami? Well, I don't, I don't know I would put it on the coordinators. I, I think, you know, they've put in – game plans and it's more about execution yeah it's more about the guys on the field and I don't think right now you can point the finger at the co-coordinators because those guys are preparing uh these guys to go out and play and it's up to the players to go out and execute and I haven't seen um I haven't seen this offense really execute to the level that I believe they can get to Let, let's put it that way so I think you know as much as uh, we were talking about earlier uh, in the podcast about, you know, a week two bad loss or a week two great win, how it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. I'd like to see a little bit more proof of what this offense can do or a little bit more opportunity for what this offense can do, say, after a quarter of the season is, is done. Now we can evaluate and say, you know what, uh, we're not getting the ball to X enough. Uh, we're not getting the ball to this guy enough. We're not uh, doing these things that uh, other teams I see do with regularity. I think we can make those judgments 
a little bit further into the season than we are now. Yeah, certainly a small sample size. And I keep going back to the Eli and Peyton broadcast when Peyton Manning said that for him in a new system, it wasn't until year two that he felt completely comfortable to be able to get to his backside reads on reads two, three, and four in his progression. So, I mean, that might be a little bit too long of a timeline, but I think give it more than just two games before you really start to make your final conclusions here, especially in a brand new system with a brand new uh, skill set and a quarterback in his really still kind of uh, 1B type rookie season here, like a Tua Tunga Bailoa. Next question from Paul McGuire. You mentioned getting guys more involved. <laughs> At Paul Con McGuire asks, how can the Dolphins get Mike Gasicki more involved in the passing game? I think it's easy. I, I think you have to dial up some stuff for Mike. We saw in the second half of that game against Buffalo, the middle of the field wide open. And why not take advantage of, of your big tight end? Uh, you know, I, I would try to get the football to him. I'd want to target him at least five or six times a game because what he can do is control the middle of the field. You can move him around, obviously. You, you like the one-on-one matchups in the red zone on the outside or that inside fade. That's great. But in the in the middle of the field, when you complete a couple passes there, it brings the safeties in. And what does that do? It's going to open up Devontae Parker. It's going to give, you know, Waddle a little bit more room on the outside. It's going to give Williams a little bit more room. Fuller comes into the offense. What does that do? Uh, maybe he's the guy that, in conjunction with Kosicki, that controls that middle of the field. So I, I think you, you got to find the tight ends a little bit more in the offense. The easiest throw for a quarterback is right down the chute. And when you have a target like that going down, you just need to get it close. I mean, Darren Waller is a great example of the way that the offense doesn't flow, I guess, you know, 100% through him, but you have to know where he is on every snap. And I think that, I, I don't think the Dolphins are at that point with the tight end position, but I certainly would like to err in that direction. I'd like to see more of a percentage go through the tight end than it is right now. Yeah, like Tua said, after the Atlanta preseason game, he was asked about Mike Asicki, and he said, he gets open. That's what he does. Mike Asicki gets open a lot. Very good player. One more question here, and I'm glad we have you for these mailbag questions. The fans put some great questions out there to us, and I'm glad to have your expertise here, John. Finns fan Josh at JC Thomas 59 wants to know, does this regime put too much emphasis on positional versatility? He asks, what is the value to playing four positions at average compared to playing one position very well? Um, I, I think the more you can do is always better, not only for the player, but for the team, because you never know when an injury is going to come up. You never know when uh, you know a guy's going to have to miss two series in a game and you're in a pinch and, and you're on a roll and you don't want to really uh, make three or four position changes when you can make one uh, and have a guy, you know, kind of like kick outside to a, a defensive end if he's playing defensive tackle or a, a linebacker or a nickel uh, going to corner. I, I just think it really helps you out uh, on defense, on offense, when a guy can play inside and outside as a receiver uh, on the offensive line. We're going to see this week. There might be some, you know, obviously everybody's talking about change. There might be some big changes there. Who knows? But whatever happens, you got to have guys that can play multiple positions because this isn't college football. <laughs> you know, you don't have 90 guys that are dressed and, and guys coming in and out. So you've got to be able to play guard tackle. you got to be able to play right side, left side if you're an offensive lineman. On the flip side, you have to be able to play maybe a three technique and maybe kick outside to a five or, or an inside or an outside linebacker. Same thing at, at, in secondary. We've seen our guys kick from nickel uh, to corner when you had an injury for a series or two or a week or two. So I think that's an advantage. And I think that Miami's 
coaching staff looks for that skill set because they coach to that and they prepare for that. And I think that's that's a bonus when you have a team um, that not, not only you can play your core position, but you have the flexibility to play other positions. It just limits your roster turnover and it limits uh, it, it expands what you can do as a team when you sign, you know, that onto that final 53. Very, very well said, John. Couldn't have said it better myself, and you have said it all on this podcast once again. John Kinjemi, we appreciate your time once again, sir. We'll see you next week for the Don Shula game or whatever we're going to call that, the Don Shula celebration against the Colts. <laughs> I can't wait to get back out there and see you back at Hard Rock Stadium, my friend. Thank you again for your time, John. I appreciate it. You, you got it. Looking forward to it, Travis. And let's go ahead and get to some more mailbag questions. These for just me individually. And this one comes from Patrick Perkins at Patty Perk on Twitter. Travis, we've seen teams in the past win games when losing their starting quarterback. What about this team gives you hope that they can also find success? Well, thinking about the backup quarterback situation and how teams have won games in those situations in the past, I'm always reminded of the Ewing theory, which I think it was a Bill Simmons thing a while Bill Simmons thing a while ago where he would say that when you were down your your top player or one of the most important players on your team that the absence of that player rose the ability of the rest of the roster and I'm not saying that's the case here but I think Miami has the mental makeup to say hey if we're down to a, we're going to have to make more plays in this area, or, you know, we can elevate our game this way, or just maybe you get that extra block or that extra run or that extra fingertip catch that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. But also, and that's kind of, you know, just being speculative, but I think where you can really hone in on actual tangible things is the way the Dolphins have won games since Brian Flores got here. And that's with the attention to detail in so many small areas of the game that just, that, add up to victories and winning coaches do these things over and over and over again. And I think it still continues to be lost on the casual observer, whether it's adjusting your game plan for a specific opponent, like, you know, not just saying this is what we do, try to beat it, try to beat us at our best. And that's what we're going to do. Like you adjust to the, to the opponent you're facing and you attack their vulnerabilities. We saw some of that last week with the bills and Sean McDermott and also penalty yardage, the kicking game, you know, like if you get a penalty on the kickoff or the, or the, the uh, ensuing kickoff after a touchdown where they have a penalty, you chip it up at the goal line and try to pin them inside the 15-yard line. Things like that that this Dolphins team has done so well for the past two-plus years, I think that's what gives Miami an advantage in most games they play, and you especially want to see that when you're down a key starter like a Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Next question from Dixon Tam, at Dixon Tam on Twitter. Would you rather eat a Cuban sandwich or clam chowder in a bowl made of sourdough bread? Man, those are both really good choices, but what kind of South Floridian would I be if I didn't choose the Cuban sandwich? I've only had a couple of Cuban sandwiches, but they've all been really, really good. So give me the Cuban. Quick little story for you guys. One of the first times I was down here was back in 2018 when I was with Locked On Dolphins and I was covering the Bills and Patriots back-to-back home games here. The Patriots game, of course, being the uh, Miami Miracle. And I went to what I thought was, or what I found as an authentic Cuban restaurant. And me and uh, Jason Harina, formerly of Locked On Dolphins as well, I go to order uh, whatever I ordered and it, it just... I I don't know. I was unsure about it. And then I saw the person next to me get something that looked really good. And I was like, Hey, can I actually cancel my order? And this is like one minute after I placed the original order. Can I cancel that and get what he's got? And they brought out both dishes and I was like, no, no, no. I just wanted the one. And they were like, eh, shrug, tough, you know, tough S so to speak. 
And so I wound up paying for both and ate the other one later. But a fun Cuban sandwich experience there in that restaurant. I can't remember the name of it, but it was very, very delicious. So a long-winded way of saying, give me the Cuban sandwich. Next question here from Andy Lawson at Sir Andy Lawson on Twitter. He says, Tua's injuries are piling up and you can't say it's the offensive line's fault. It's football. He's going to get hit. Ryan Tannehill took a lot of hits and almost always got back up. At what point do you look for a plan B and what is plan B? Well, the reason I want to address this question is you mentioned Ryan Tannehill. And I think that's a great comparison right there because in football, guys are like durable and healthy and reliable until they're not. And that's what Tannehill was for a long time, right? He would, you know, take that punishment, take that abuse and get hit and get back up. And then one kind of wonky play winds up wiping out a year plus of his career here with Miami. Then he gets the shoulder injury where he gets hit awkwardly. And that takes him out of, what was it, five or six ball games back in 2018. He had an ankle injury that took him out of the Miami Miracle game. He had to come back from that, but he was really slow and hobbled by that. So like you go from not missing a game in five years to three injuries in a 12-month span, does that mean you're injury prone? Or does it mean that you were hit in a certain way that was relatively fluky? Like we're not talking about soft tissue issues here. We're talking about a 265-pound defensive end, unabated to the quarterback, pile driving Tua into the ground, landing on his ribs and breaking his ribs. Like that's gonna happen. I just, I don't see it that way. I think that players are, injuries happen and, you know, fluky things happen. And this instance happened to be one of those things where it's not fluky because like you said, you're going to get hit, but to have that happen, I don't know too many human bodies that could withstand being driven into the turf with a 265-pound guy. So my plan B is to Tonga Vailoa to support him, to continue to build around him, and to uh, continue to develop him because he's only, is it 11 games into his NFL career right now? I want to develop that and see what we have in Tua Tonga Vailoa because I think that when you do get to that ultimate developmental stage or the, the final stages of that development from what you think he could be, I think you have a damn good prospect here in your, in your hands. What else do we have? I'm seeing a lot of draft questions and, you know, that was fun for me in 2019. We started this whole thing and it was kind of fun to look ahead to the draft because it was going to be a big thing for us that year with all the picks and everything. But man, we're two games into a season where this team has a lot of good players, a lot of talent and a lot of good coaches. I'd rather see the season through first before we really get to that. So let's just go ahead and pass on the draft questions. We'll come back to that in December and January and, and so forth and so on. Uh, Next question here from Simon at SimonWO2. Hi, Travis. I'd like your thoughts on the positive negatives regarding dual offensive coordinators. And truth be told, Simon, I I really don't think you can evaluate that without having a real intimate knowledge of responsibilities and decisions and and all that stuff. And so for any of us to really come in with an opinion, it's kind of speculative guesswork. Now, what I will say is that there's a wealth of experience and knowledge and different backgrounds within this, coach, within this coaching staff, and that allows for what Brian Flores wants to execute in a collaboration to get as many good ideas out there and to be comfortable to suggest those ideas and to be able to comfortably reject those ideas as you see fit. So I just, I don't really think that there's like a, a distinct downside to it. I just think it's all about trusting and delegating your staff and putting these guys in position to do their job and trust them to do their jobs. That's the positive to me. And again, the downside, like I'm just not of the mind that it's like a bad thing because it's unique to the NFL. Like there's a bunch of college teams that have dual coordinators and it's happened in the pros before as well. I've always been of the mind that the more good minds you have on a project, the better off you're going to be. So if that's 
if that's two guys, if it's three guys, if it's four guys, if it's the entire offensive staff collaborating, I'm, I'm good with that. So I hope that answers your question well enough there, Simon. Next one here from Octavio Mendez L at Octo84 on Twitter. Could you explain in the RPO when you hand off? I understand that when the linebacker commits, you go for the pass behind. But what if the pass behind is covered by the safety, like with Buffalo last week? You have to wait for a second window, or should you have handed it off? Yeah, that's kind of the the difficulty with the RPO and why you probably don't make it your like base offense that you go to over and over again. It's more of a good complementary skill set to what you do, and it also can feature plenty of motion and, and jet sweeps, and you can build a lot of stuff off the RPO game. So when that happens. Honestly, your best your best idea is just to throw the football away because, like you mentioned, if the first read's taken away and the, the running read's taken away, there are instances in this league, and it happens all the time, where you have to acknowledge that the other side of the football gets paid as well and they can win plays as well. And sometimes you have to tip your cap and say, defense won that play. Let's go ahead and put this thing in the dirt and come back and try to get them on the next play. And sometimes it's the next series. Like patience is definitely a thing in this league. And sometimes your play caller gets beat. And that's, you know, that happens for us too, as far as our offense beating the defense's play call. So it's not a perfect situation in any type of offense, but like you talk about there, after the initial read is gone and after the, of, of the handoff, the zone read run for the quarterback, the keeper, and then the first passing lane's gone, if you don't have a quick snap second read, like probably the same side of the field for like a slant flat, and we've had that before, if you don't have that available, your best option more often than not is going to be to go ahead and ground that thing or throw it away and get it the hell out of there. So great question, Octavio. I hope that answers your question well. Let's go to uh, Adam Etheridge here at Cold Ghetto on Twitter. What's the best non-sports documentary film or series you've ever seen? I'm saying The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. If you haven't seen it, don't read about it first. I have seen that. It's fantastic. And, you know, this is one of those questions on the spot where I wish I had a little bit of time to, to go look at it. And I guess I could, but off the top of my head, there was a documentary on, I think it was Netflix a few years back called The Imposter. And there was a, a kid that had gone missing in the state of Texas and his family was looking for him for like years and didn't find him obviously. And then a couple years after the fact, there was this this guy who was, wasn't even a kid. He was like an adult from Europe and I don't remember what country, but he came over and he like said, I'm your missing son. I'm your child. And they took him in and he lived with them for like years it was a crazy documentary. You should check it out. The Imposter. I believe it was on Netflix. I'm not sure if it's still on there, but that's one of my favorites of all time. Also loved Exit Through the Gift Shop was a documentary on Banksy around that same time as well. Also on Netflix. Check that out. HBO's got tons of them too. Like the recent uh, End of the Storm or the Q documentary was really informative and interesting as well. Uh, you mentioned non-sports, but I have to put this one in there because I watched it recently. But the Untold Crime and Penalties the about the... Uh, the, was it the Dearborn Trashers, the hockey team? I forget the name of the city, but the trashing ho- hockey, the Trashers hockey team where the 17-year-old kid was the GM. That's like one of the most amazing stories of all time. So go check that out if you have not seen it. Let's go ahead and finish up here with Hassan Patel. He asks, let's get your handle. I'm trying to load your pay- this page here, Hassan. We're going to find it. One second. And wouldn't you know it, he's at Hassan Patel on Twitter. I love when you guys do that. Top five Curb Your Enthusiasm episodes. That's impossible, sir. Um, I've rewatched a lot of the recent seasons way more than the older ones, like because they came back after a long, a long layoff. I loved Palestine. The Palestine Chicken was it called? That episode was fantastic. But more recently speaking, um, the Carpool one was great back in the day as well. But more recently speaking, the Jets Killed Carl episode is the b- very best one. Like. 
the reference to him waking up in the middle of the night screaming, Watson! Or the uh, freak out when he sees that Le'Veon Bell was injured on his phone at lunch. Like, that episode, and they say, hey, it's just a game. It's just a game. He says, it's not just a game. Football is not just a game. Like, I felt that in Carl, obviously for the Dolphins, not the Jets. But that's my top episode. That's only three, but I think it's good enough. Let's go ahead and close up the mailbag. We'll come back and get some more answers, some more football-related question answers on the MiamiDolphins.com mailbag piece coming out on either Friday or Saturday. I'll check back on that and let you guys know on Twitter. Oh, real quick, I almost forgot. We have some reviews on Apple Podcasts. As I told you guys, a five-star rating will get you your question read here on the Apple reviews. This one from JP Man 2369 I love your show. You have a great balance of mix and fandom and analytics when discussing the Fins. I've learned a lot just from listening. Thank you very much, JP. That's exactly what we're going for. My question to you is this. The Dolphins have built this team with one of the main player attributes being flexibility. I think initially fans and even those in the media didn't understand the concept of two offensive coordinators. I think this two OC concept gives the Dolphins the same flexibility when it comes to game planning for all the different style teams they will face. Example, how the game plan against and player usage will differ against New England and then the Buffalo based on obvious differences between them. Would you agree? 100%. Yeah, that was kind of the earlier question I answered with regards to the collaboration. Like that just gives you more knowledge and more background. Like we covered this in the podcast over the off season. You know, Charlie Fry is a good example. He was with the, the Central Michigan Chippewas a year ago and they ran a run heavy type of uh, RPO offense. And you see some of that action here coming into the NFL, not just in Miami, but across the league or George Godsey's time in these heavy two tight end packages or some of the concepts they run with him in his past stops in Houston and New England or, you know, Eric Studisville and his contributions in the run game and some of the stuff he brought initially back in 2018 his first year and now developing that further into 2021 so 100% agree JP that's a great point and I talked about it on the podcast between the Buffalo and New England game how different those teams were and how different the Dolphins approached that a prime example of just that Uh, oh we got a one-star one here this is from Dolphin Ray what's up Ray good to see you writing back again here man you've uh he's written a few of these one-star reviews so I'm glad that we're still having you on the podcast hope you're enjoying it Travis Mailbag, they gave up 35, he says, but the defense played well. Okay, dude. Um, Well, yeah, I I didn't say they played well. I said that I thought there were some moments where they really showed the ability to to contain Josh Allen more than they have in the past. He had less than 200 passing yards. That only happened three times all of last season. And 35 points on 14 possessions. I mean, it's not good, but it's not terrible. It's uh, that's a little over, what, I guess, two and a half points per possession. You want to be lower than two points per possession. So it obviously wasn't good, but it wasn't, you know, horrendous. It, w- it was more, I think, the offense's inability to convert and, and keep the defense off the field that was uh, detrimental to the scoreboard as well as the turnovers there in that game. So appreciate you writing in, Ray. We'll see your next update when it comes in here on the one-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That's it for our Apple Podcast updates. Let's go ahead and finish this thing up here with our NFL picks. But first, the college three-pack. You guys know how it goes. I'm washed up these days, so we can't do a six-pack. Just three-pack of games here for you. Number 12, Notre Dame goes to number 18, Wisconsin, on Saturday. I'm taking Notre Dame, and I want to talk about my second favorite player in this class among those I have seen so far. Kayvon Thibodeau at Oregon is number one, and number two is safety Kyle Hamilton from Notre Dame. One of my favorite things is when you spot a talent and you find out he's a freshman in college, then three years later, he's a top prospect. Now, with Hamilton, that's hardly a feather in the cap because he was so good from day one. Everybody knew about Kyle Hamilton, but he's probably the most instinctive safety I've seen. And this is going to be a recency bias and over-the-top idea from, as, as you hear it, I'm sure. But since Ed Reed, like no cap, he's 
legit side to side downhill playing the deep post. Did you see his week one pick at Stanford? It was an unreal play. He's on the strong side of the formation and the back releases into his wheel route on the weak side and the weak backer goes to pick it up. But even still, Hamilton breaks to that route like at the snap and just flies over there like King Griffey Jr. racing down a ball in the right center field gap at the Kingdome back in 1997. And he just knew that's where the ball was going and got on his horse, got to that spot, gets across the entire field, steps in front and makes a diving catch with his arms extended and catching the back end of the football and tucking it in and tapping the toes before he goes out of bounds. Like I'm, I'm not kidding. It's the one of the greatest defensive plays I've seen in my entire life. He is so, so, so good. And with the Irish, you normally start on the offensive line, but that's how good Hamilton is. Still, They've got another couple of dudes up front. Jarrett Patterson, a potential first-round center or slash guard. He could play both, I think. But he has that Frank Ragnow, Elton Jenkins plug-and-play makeup at center. Pass game, run game, leadership communication. He really has it all. Let's keep it brief this week and go with just three guys. I'll give you Isaiah Foxy, the defensive end, six foot five, two fifty-seven. Similar makeup to the ends the Dolphins have on the roster here, like Emmanuel Ogba, for instance. He's stout against the run, had ten sacks a year ago, but that length and bend combo, mwah, chef's kiss. Wisconsin has some dudes too. Defensive tackle Keanu Benton is nasty. He can line up over the nose and completely disregard good big centers. He had a rep in the Big Ten championship game against Josh Myers, who was a day two pick last year where he just deploys the snatch slash arm over move and goes right around him for a sack on Justin Fields. What a monster. Best interior rush prospect going into the season for my money. Tight end Jake Ferguson has a chance to be the top tight end off the board. A good mix of pass and game and blocking game. Uh, good movement skills and technique as well at the point of attack. And then back on the offensive line, Logan Bruss came back for his senior season and has the look of that next Wisconsin offensive lineman. I mean, what a game for trench scouting. Notre Dame, Wisconsin. Can't get much better than that. But he can play guard and tackle. Some will probably project him inside, but he kind of reminds me of Dalton Reisner a couple of years ago from Kansas State. Everybody wanted to kick him inside, but he's just a damn good right tackle. He can get out in space, and he's a nasty finisher also like Dalton Reisner. The other game on my, on my list here, Texas A&M at Arkansas, number seven versus number 16. Give me Arkansas on the upset at home for the biggest win in their program probably since the Darren McFadden, Felix Jones days, like, like 15 years ago. But speaking of running backs, we're going to get to the other side here with Isaiah Spiller from Texas A&M. He's my top back in the country. Strong runner, smooth strider, and perhaps even more dynamic in the passing game. Six foot one, 215 pounds, sticks that foot in the ground with an effortless change of direction without losing acceleration. He had 32 runs last year of 15 plus yards. Running back one for sure. I just love his game. He makes tough catches like you see from a receiver too. Like, did you guys see the Colorado game a few weeks ago? He makes a clutch third down reception to keep the offense on the field, then comes back and catches a wheel at the pylon to win the game. Jordan Reed of the Draft Network has a great breakdown of his game, and he says the thing that stands out is his ability to consistently make defenders miss in that third level. And what do I always say about running backs? I want to be able to hit home runs, and Spiller is a home run hitter. He's also led by left guard Kenyon Green, the best, I think the best, well, he's playing tackle this year, so maybe he's not an interior prospect, but he can play every position on the offensive line, powerful, athletic, and they moved him from left guard to left tackle this season. So just keep an eye on 55 for AM, one of the top offensive line prospects in the entire country. And then on the defensive line, DeMarvin Leal, 290-pound, two-gapper, intelligence to read and react and get off blocks, strength to hold the point, but he can also win with speed moves as well. A dynamic defensive lineman there for the Aggies. For Arkansas, are they finally back? 
few guys to keep an eye on. Safety, Jalen Catalan has a chance to be safety too behind Hamilton. Range, closing speed, instincts that popped. But man, he's a hitter too. He comes down and lays the, lays the wood. Very versatile safety there for the Razorbacks. I also like center Ricky Stromberg. Control, balance, lunch pail type of player. I'll be curious to see when they kick Leal inside to take him on. Then we go out to Lincoln, Nebraska for another Big Ten matchup here. Michigan State at the Cornhuskers. And we only have two ranked games this week, but I wanted to get a good look at running back Kenneth Walker. What a load he is from Michigan State. The tailback that Hurricane fans are very familiar with right now. He can press the hole and put defenders in conflict. Great feel and agility and acceleration off that jump cut, but also the power to explode through arm tackles. Then they have a try-hard, long defensive end in Drew Beasley. He's a tremendous edge setter in the running game. I also like center Matt Allen. He's one of those guys that's played a million games for Sparty. Great anchor, rare length for a center, and a level of toughness you love at that position. And for the Huskers, cornerback Cam Taylor-Britt can play a little bit of everything. He's an inside star position, safety, cornerback, special teams, return guy, competitive as hell for the Cornhuskers. And then a couple more names I'm not really familiar with, but I want to watch in that game. Linebacker Jojo Doman and tight end Austin Allen. Let's finish up here with the NFL picks this week. We were 12 and 14 a week ago. Let's go, baby. 21 and 11 on the season. And we missed it on the Thursday podcast. And if you have my word here, this was recorded on Thursday afternoon. It's actually 1249 out here in the East when I recorded this podcast before the kickoff of Thursday night football. And I'm kind of glad this is the week I forgot to do it because this game, as far as Picks go from the general consensus is pretty much a consensus, which of course is always when the NFL zags, right? When everybody zigs, the NFL zags. But recording this on a Thursday afternoon, publishing Friday morning, I'm sure Davis Mills probably threw for 500 yards and six touchdown passes, and this will have aged poorly. But give me Carolina to get off to the 3-0 start this year in year number two under Matt Rule. Titans and Colts, uncertainty at the quarterback position for the Colts in what is usually a close game. So that to me tips the scales to the Titans for Tannehill and Henry and those boys give me the Tennessee Titans in that game. Uh, Falcons and Giants. Falcons get their first win and do it on the road against the Giants, who are both these teams 0-2. Got to get a dub on both sides, but I'll take the Falcons. Chargers at Chiefs. Remember the rule? Always take the Chiefs, plain and simple. Cincinnati and Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh at home. Revenge game for that game last year when Ryan Finley got them on Monday Night Football. Give me the Steelers. Chicago and Cleveland. Justin Fields makes his first start, but give me the Browns. I think they're about to get cranking here with that loaded roster, good coaching staff, and even with a banged up Baker Mayfield. I'm stoked to see Fields get his first start, but I think it's going to take some time for him to really hit his stride and blossom into all that talent we see that he has at that quarterback position. Baltimore and Detroit needs a lot for me to go against Lamar. That's not going to happen this week. Give me the Ravens. New Orleans and New England. Give me Winston and the Saints for a bounce back victory after a tough game last week. I like the New Orleans defense to put the clamps on the Patriots and win a tight game similar to the one we saw with the Dolphins and Patriots a couple weeks ago. Arizona and Jacksonville. Kyler is going to contend for the MVP this year. One of the funnest players to watch in the league. Give me the Cardinals. Washington and Buffalo. I really wanted to see Fitzpatrick this year do his thing, but he's obviously still down. Give me Josh Allen and the Bills at home. Jets at Broncos. Broncos get off to a 3-0 start. Give me the the, uh, home side there. Miami and Las Vegas. Give me the Dolphins. Seahawks and Vikings. Seahawks... I like him to bounce back off a tough loss here. I guess the same could be said about the Vikings, who are in desperation mode also at 0-2. But in a tight game, I'm taking Russ and the Seahawks. And we go back out west for Tampa and Los Angeles, the game of the week. 
I'll take the Rams over the defending Super Bowl champions. I think this is an NFC Championship game preview, and I'll take the home team. And then Sunday Night Football, Green Bay's in San Francisco. I got Aaron Rodgers staying hot. Give me the pack on the road. And then Philly is at Dallas for Monday Night Football. I will take Dak Prescott. He's playing unconscious right now. Give me the Cowboys big in that one. All right, that's going to be my time. Go back and check out the Thursday preview podcast if you have not done so already. The most in-depth preview podcast you'll find on the Miami Dolphins. H H each and every week here on the Drive Time Podcast. In the meantime, that's going to be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. The five-star ones will get read, and some of the one-star ones will get read as well if I have to kind of debate you guys on those ones. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at Wingfield NFL. You can follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank Podcast with Seth and OJ. Our YouTube channel has every media availability up there on that channel. Also, MiamiDolphins.com. Check us out for written content on the .com. Until next time, fins up.